You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. The music you are hearing is Peter Knight's Gig Spanner. Peter was the violinist and occasionally the singer for Steel Eye Span, one of the most enduring, most popular, most proficient, most important players of traditional British songs. They had some certifiable hits in the 1970s, adding drums and electric guitars. By the 80s, they were writing their own material that still had very much a traditional flavor and would mix that in with their very creative rearrangements of the traditional material. We're going to be discussing a song from Peter's last album with Steel Eye Span. The album is called Wintersmith from 2013. That was a collaboration with the author Terry Pratchett, and his song is called We Shall Wear Midnight. We're then going to go to Peter's most recent 2015 album with Gig Spanner. They're reworking of a traditional song called Bows of London. And then we'll talk about a song written in 2013 called From a Lullaby Kiss. And finally, to close out, we'll listen to Who Told the Butcher, another Steel Eye Span song from 2000's Bedlam Born. To learn more about Peter, check out peternight.net. To learn more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Hello, Peter. Hiya, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing great. So I will have started... I wanted to get at some of your crazy, I said free jazz, but it's not free jazz. It's not no tonality, but improvisational aspect by playing a little bit of the butterfly. I know at that point when you had created Gig Spanner and before that you had Tana, the other three piece that yep. I know had some of the same, a few of the same songs at least, or that Steel Eye Span was actually still going at that time. Was this the kind of the separate thing where you could solo for 10 minutes and that was kind of the release that you were not able to get in that more structured setting? Sort of, I suppose. (laughs) Being a human being on the planet is not an exact science, is it? We manoeuvre ourselves through our lives and our music and our loves and weirdnesses as human beings. And the lovely thing about getting older is that you feel that you can choose what you want to do without having to try and justify it, if you know what I mean. So what's lovely about Gig Spanner is it's three people making music for the same reasons. And within the arrangements, we leave ourselves space mm-hmm. so that if something spontaneous comes along, then we're all very happy to follow that through to wherever it's going to go. And unlike, for instance, a, a gig that I just did in London with... Trevor Watson, Varian Weston, a gig that was filmed and recorded, and I've just been listening to some mixes that Trevor's done. And the music is absolutely superb. And that is completely free, open improvisation. And I suppose you could call it jazz. I I tend not to like the labels, really. They are there, and they do have their uses. But when the influences just sort of come in more subliminally when you're playing free, spontaneous music... It doesn't really seem fair to say I'm a folk musician or a jazz musician or classical because no one's learned the licks. You know, we've been influenced by music. With Gig Spanner, for instance, as you've mentioned, a track called The Butterfly, before I head into the tune and we pick up the rhythm, that is a place for me just to close my eyes and to improvise. But within the context of Gig Spanner, Because I want to intrigue audiences and not alienate them, I improvise in a way that is more to do with creating beautiful melodies and any little lines that I do. I don't want people to go, hang on, this isn't folk music, I don't like this. I want people to say, this is folk music because I love folk music, but there's something else going on and I'm not sure what it is. 
And that's why the class that I hold in the UK, that's why fiddle players come to that class, because they hear me play, they know that I'm not just playing the tune, they can hear that there is a freedom that I'm enjoying, but they're not quite sure how to get there. And I can help people with that and maybe open a few doors for them. So you're right, Mark, it's not free jazz that I play, but it's certainly free I just watched a video of you playing with Trevor Watts, and he stops. It's from 2009, I believe. And Mm. for the first chunk of it, responding to the mood of the moment, since you're sailing away, he puts his sax on his lap and starts playing it like a drum and and does that for a while before picking it back up and accompanying you. Yeah, well, it's it's all there to mess with, isn't it, with music. And because I've been in Steel Lifespan, I'm not, I left at the end of 2013. But because I've got one foot in the door as far as getting gigs for Gig Spanner, and when Peter Knight from Steel Lifespan, or even now ex-Steel Lifespan, phones up, then they take you seriously. So I'm known as a folk musician, really, although I'm not a folk musician. I love folk music, but I love all sorts of other music as well. So my relationship with music does stem from being free to make the music that I want to make. Although I know that it's very easy to alienate people, it doesn't take much for people to th- <laughs> for people to think that you're taking the piss. Sometimes, you know, people think that because you're playing something that they actually can't, they have no emotions to guide them into how they should be feeling. Whereas if I hear improvised music, my ears can cope with all of it. I'm very interested. You know, and I listen to what the, how the players are reacting to each other and I can pick out certain musicians saying, yeah, I like that player particularly, but maybe not that person particularly or whatever, you know, but maybe he's just having a bad night or something. My ears and my head and heart are very used to listening to any sort of music without judging it. I don't want to say, oh, that's horrible music. I never do that. I'm very glad that it's all out there. Well, let's swing to sort of the other pole of your writing with this first song that you picked, the one Steel Eye Span that we're going to listen to in full here, We Shall Wear Midnight from the Wintersmith 2013 CD. So it's the last track of the album, the last album that you're on, the last album that they put out at all to this point, which is fairly atypical for Steel Eye Span in that it is not a traditional song. Well, I know you wrote a lot and we can talk about the line between writing and arranging seems a little fuzzy, that you've got Gone to America that is credited to Peter Knight, comma, traditional. We've got the structure here where the whole album is a concept album relating to Terry Pratchett's work, and in particular the novel Wintersmith. Do you want to say a few words about where this song fits in that or otherwise where it's coming from before we just play it? Okay. The Wintersmith project sort of kicked off, really, with my wife saying, when you play at Terry Pratchett's 60th birthday party, why don't you ask him if he will be interested in some sort of collaboration? So we played at Terry's birthday party, we turned up, and I went for a walk down by the river on Terry Pratchett's land. And I just said to him, you know, have you ever considered a... Because he's a great Steel Life fan, or was... A collaboration with Steeleye and he said I thought you'd never ask and that's what led to he then went and got three books which are the books related to a young developing witch called Tiffany Aching and that's how the project started so we all went away to write three songs each basically Terry did say to me that if it was like The King of Elfland's Daughter, which is an album I did based on a book by Lord Dunsany, and I wrote that with Bob Johnson, who was in the band at the time, Terry said, if it was like that, I'd be very pleased. 
Well, I can understand Terry saying that, but I've sort of done that. And when I came home and sat in my studio here in France, I thought, well, how am I going to get involved in this project and to write something original for this project? I don't believe in witches and goblins and elves and fairies. I don't believe in that. And what I don't want to do is to musically illustrate Terry Pratchett's imagination. So I sat there in my studio with head in hand, trying to find some reason to write something for this project that wasn't just taking one of the characters and writing about them or taking a couple of lines in the book or something and writing about them. Then what happened was that my thought processes led me to the reality that all of the characters in Terry Pratchett's book only exist because of Terry Pratchett. But in the minds of millions of people, these characters are sort of real characters and they have identities, but they are all Terry Pratchett. And none of them have a choice about their existence. Terry Pratchett has created them. They didn't create themselves. They're not independent from Terry Pratchett. So I knew that I'd found the the seed of something that was worth pursuing as a thought process to write a song about. The song that I wrote, which I call it We Shall Wear Midnight, Terry wrote a book after the Wintersmith trilogy called I Shall Wear Midnight, and I just thought that was just such a lovely line. He actually took it from someone else's line, another writer. The whole line was, I think it was, When I'm Old, I Shall Wear Purple. And Terry just took this as I Shall Wear Midnight. So I sat there and I thought, okay, well, let's... Take Tiffany Aching, this young witch, who doesn't want to be in Terry's book. She doesn't want to exist. So my song is about Tiffany Aching trying to seduce Terry Pratchett into releasing her from her prison of fiction and fantasy. And as soon as I had that, I knew that I could write a song that for me would be an interesting song and not just illustrating something that Terry had written in his books. And for me, the We Shall Wear Midnight or I Shall Wear Midnight, it's sort of the end game for me. That's sort of what it means, really. I mean, your listeners can listen to the words and this is Tiffany Aching saying to Terry, hey, come on, write me out of this. (laughs) I guess the missing piece here of the picture, were you writing this after he'd announced that he was fatally ill so that the whole thing kind of had this... Oh, no, this is nothing to do with... Okay. We knew Terry when he was ill. To be honest, everyone's fatally ill, aren't they? It's just a matter of time. And at that point, none of us were sure how long Terry was going to live for because the sort of Alzheimer's that he had was not the worst sort, apparently, and when we spoke to him, I mean, he was compass mentis. He was, he was nobody's fool. And it was actually a bit of a shock when he died because it seemed far too quick. And I don't think any of us had any idea that it was going to happen that quickly. My song is not about Terry dying or any of that. Sure. My song is about, as I say, Tiffany aching, trying to not exist Tears, for I have no life of my 
So beautiful, I guess not atypical for your writing within the band, but atypical for a Steel Ice band, not only in that it's not traditional, but in that it's a ballad, in that the lead part here 
the part that I would normally associate with where your violin would fit in the mix is actually filled by sax as the song goes on. Are you holding your violin like a guitar when you're playing this, yeah. when you come in? Okay. Is that the way that you've kind of gotten so that it's easier to sing while playing? Or I do both. It's just that when I was writing the song, I was just cording arpeggiated chords on the fiddle as I was singing and working through the song, you know, and working out the melody and whatever. And it just stayed. And Julian Littman in the band, pretty good piano player. He played piano. Mm -hmm. I didn't want bass and drums on it. Rick and Liam, I think, were a little bit upset about that. But when you're in a band, it's not necessary for everyone to play on everything. And I did want that particular track to be just a little bit sparse you know i think that um there's all that less is more one isn't it you can put too much into the mix and just end up covering up the sort of essence of it somehow you know i kept it sparse and pete zorn god bless him he's he's a goner yeah this last april i saw yeah world-class musician fantastic clever mind great sense of humor and i loved him i thought it was a superb man and a superb musician he put so much into his playing, and I like sax, you know. <laughs> I was interpreting this as being about death, but is the subtext here, is the character in being written out wants to die? Is that... No. Okay. It didn't actually go that far. The interesting bit of the song for me is that a fictitious character wants the creator of that character to write her out. She's seducing him. Mm -hmm. and she's saying, one day I shall wear midnight. It's sort of meaningless, because for me, I say, it's not even death, actually. And, of course, I'm totally sensitive to the, the thing. What I would hate, now that Terry Pratchett's no longer with us, I mean, if I thought that anyone was thinking that I was writing this song and at the end, one day we shall wear midnight, which is what I said. I don't think when Terry Pratchett put we shall wear midnight, he was talking about death. And I'm not talking about death. But philosophically, I'm very aware that we've all got that coming for us. And I don't see that as something morbid or something that you shouldn't talk about. Death is part of life. So Tiffany aching, I mean, saying, why don't you write me some candlelight and wear your heart of gold? And I will wear these aching, heartbreaking years till one day I shall wear midnight. It's the seduction for me that is the interesting aspect of the song. The fact that a fictitious character is saying to the creator, I'm going to seduce you so that one day I shall wear midnight, whatever that means. And when I was writing it, I actually had a conversation with Terry at the Folk Awards. Steel I Span got this um, quite a weird Folk Award, actually, the BBC Two Folk Awards. And I think it was called the Good Tradition Award. And I've got absolutely no idea what that means. And what interests me about awards generally is whether you subscribe to the fact that people should be telling you what they think is good or bad about you and whatever. Because the bottom line in your lifetime, you have to know yourself. And I understand that it helps to keep the industry going and all the rest of it. But anyway, Steele and Terry Pratchett and his lovely wife, we were sitting there at the table. And Terry really liked my fiddle playing. And particularly when I took it out a bit and went into those areas, the exploring the possibility areas. And we talked about the written word and music. And which says the most to the listener? I don't actually think we came up with any conclusion, but that sort of 
What I'm saying here, really, is that the song is sort of meaningless. All the song is about is Tiffany Aching saying to Terry Pratchett, Sure. Take me away from this. I couldn't have written a song about... I couldn't have taken a character in one of Terry's books and illustrated it the way that I did with The King of Elfland's Daughter, for instance. The imps are in the lumber loft, and and this is that, and then they're doing this, and then they're doing that. I'm a 70-year-old man who's been on the planet with marriages and emotions and a child and love and weirdnesses and music and imagination. I can't do that. It's a total waste of time for me to do that. You know, having done it all those years ago with The King of Elfland's Daughter, I had to find another way in to write a song that for me would be interesting, you know. And I had loads and loads of emails from Terry Pratchett fans just saying thank you for that beautiful, beautiful song. Lovely, you know, because the whole thing's fantasy. And my song is fantasy. That's fantastic in itself. Sure. Expressing something very personal through a narrative, I mean, this seems just exactly like you were taught this skill from dealing in the way that Steel Ice Band does with all these traditional ballads. So again, this kind of brings to the question in a song like Let Her Go Down that you wrote, but it's got historical overtones or Gone to America from the same album that is part traditional. Can you say something about how you've taken, at least in those two cases, how you're interfacing your personal emotions with the tradition? Well, both of those songs I wrote, and they're not traditional, but... They sound a bit traditional, let it go down probably more than gone to America. And I had left Steel Ice Band for a period of about three or four years, I think. I met a plumber that hated plumbing and we bought a fishing boat and we went fishing in the channel and we went trammel netting and trawling. It was very hard work and I ended up in a bit of debt and I could hardly play my fiddle because all my hands were like a fisherman's hands and just rough and all the rest of it. And then I got a phone call from Chris List Records saying that we would like Steel Ice Band to make three albums for a large sum of money and you have to be in the band. And the key players in the band are Maddie Pryor, Tim Hart and you. And are you interested? So I said, yes, I'm interested, but I need some money in my back pocket because I'm in debt. And they said, yeah, that's okay. So Gus Dudgeon produced the album. It was called Sales of Silver. And... I hadn't come up with any songs. We were all meeting Gus Dudgeon, who wanted to hear the songs before he agreed to produce the album. So I wrote a song about something that I was doing at the time, which was fishing in a fishing boat in the English Channel. And Let Her Go Down is a song that a lot of people don't know what it's about. I don't actually know what it's about. So you didn't research a specific sinking or something? Yeah, okay. No, all it was is that the weirdness of... I mean, life's weird, isn't it, you know? I mean, what's lovely about life is that we go along and we make all these plans and everything, and then something comes along. The song is about weather turning really quickly, and it does happen, and I've been out there when it's happened, and you steam ashore as quickly as you can. So that's sort of what the song was about. So we all met in a studio. I hadn't recorded Let It Go Down. I'd written it and played it, but I hadn't recorded it. And I hadn't seen the rest of the guys in Steel Life for that three or four years. We all met in the studio and everyone had got their tapes to play the songs and all this. And I thought, blimey, you know. So the guy that owned the studio said, well, there's a piano down there. I can stick a mic up and you can sing it if you want, if you don't want to sing it live to Gus Dudgeon. So I said, okay. So I went downstairs, I sang the song, and Gus Dudgeon basically heard all the songs. And he said, well, there's one song here 
and you've got to go and find a bunch more. He said, and we're, Let Her Go Down is the song. He said, that's a good song, you know. So I went away then and wrote Gone to America over a couple of days. And Gone to America was about someone being sent to America, a villain, you know. Sort of a silly song, really. Let Her Go Down was a good song. Gone to America, a little bit of a silly song. I heard it on an airline going to America. That was quite good fun. <laughs> There's got to be a consciousness there, or at least a habit, though, you know, the fact that it sounds like it's something that could have been written in 1800 when people were being exiled from Britain to, I don't know if that's when that would happen exactly. Yeah. So was the idea that that's just the mode that you were in after playing that kind of music for so long that even when you produce something wholly original, that it comes out with that tone? Or were you just being very conscious I'm writing for a Steely Span record and the audience and the record company are going to have certain expectations that if they're not traditional songs, they kind of have to sound like traditional songs. Yeah, sort of. You're on the right track there. I mean, we recorded, Steely Span recorded To Know Him Is To Love Him and we recorded it in America and we had some fantastic musicians playing on it. Hal Blaine was playing drums. At the end of it, it sounded so good that I think we were with Warner Brothers at the time in America And they just said it's just sounding so good that we can't release it because if it does happen to do anything and people hear it and they come along to the gigs and then they hear about, you know, poachers and lords and ladies and up and spake the bonny white steed and all this sort of stuff, you know, they're going to be bitterly disappointed. So, yeah, horses for courses. I was writing for Steel Span and all of the songs that I've written for Steel Span, the folk aspect of it, is partly melodic, that I don't want to write something that just sounds like a pop song or something, but it's the subject matter is always a bit folky. You know, the Let It Go Down was the sea. Mm-hmm. Other songs I've written, a song Seagull that I wrote, which was about the game Penny. It was sort of, apart from being a criminal and sent to America, it was sort of about things that I'd done. This seems a good transition to our second song, which is an actual traditional one, Bows of London, which I saw another interview with you that you had gleaned from a Martin Carthy version. However, I see that Wikipedia has entries for many of these separate songs. So uh, they have one for the Trois Sisters, earliest record in 1656 as the Miller and the King's Daughter, but there are many, many, many versions of this general story. Yeah. You could use this to talk about this in particular, but throughout the life of the band to the extent that you were the one picking songs how do these things work in terms of it seems like there aren't that many books there's what the child's ballads and the several reference so i'm a little unclear how you all keep finding new traditional songs to delve into well it's interesting isn't it the reason why gig spanner which is my trio i'll say our trio sings songs anyway and doesn't just play, is that when my wife Deborah was trying to get gigs for Gig Spanner, when we decided that we wanted a sort of tour and play in art centres and festivals and so on, the question from the promoters was always, do they sing? And at that time, when we started, we weren't singing any songs. We were playing. And it started as a sort of, just that we like playing music together. Mm -hmm. And we played in a few pubs in Hastings, which is where I lived, south coast of England. And the queues were getting bigger and bigger outside the door of the pubs. And it was my wife said, well, let's get a few sensible gigs and see what happens. It's probably eight or nine years ago that was. But the question was always, do they sing? Because people didn't seem to want just instrumentals. They thought that would be boring. I mean, I don't know about orchestral works or something, but, you know, you don't have to sing on the gigs. But that was the reason why I started singing some songs with Gig Spanner 
and looking for songs, traditional songs, some of them I love. I mean, Bows of London, for instance, the reason why I love that is it's about a fiddle player that makes a fiddle out of body parts. And I think that's pretty good. (laughs) Well, let's play it for them and then we'll talk more about it. Sisters are walking along, hey, the gay and the grinding. Two little sisters walking along by the bonny, bonny bows of London. And the eldest pushed a sister in, hey, the gay and the grinding. Pushed a sister into the stream by the bonny, bonny bows of London. She pushed her in, she watched her drown, hey, the gay and the grinding. Watched her body floating down by the bonny, bonny bows of London. She floated up and she floated down, hey, the gay and the grinding. Until she came to the miller's dam by the bonny, bonny bows of London. Then out and came the miller's son, hey, the gay and the grinding. Oh, father dear, swims a swan. By the bonny, bonny bows of London And they laid her out on the bank to die Hey, the gay and the grinding When a fool with a fiddle came riding by By the bonny, bonny bows of London And he cut some strands of her long yellow hair Hey, the gay and the grinding He cut some strands of her long yellow hair By the bonny, bonny bows of London And he made the bonny bonny bows of London But the only tune that the fiddle would play was all the bows of London The only tune that the fiddle would play was the bonny bonny bows of London
So the fool's gone away to the king's high hall. Hey, the gay and the grinding. There was music dancing all by the bonny bonny bows of London. He laid this fiddle all down on a stone. Hey, the gay and the grinding. It played so loud, it played all along by the bonny bonny bows of London. It sang, "Yonder sits my father, the king. Hey, the gay and the grinding. Yonder sits my father, the king, by the bonny bonny bows of London. And yonder sits my mother, the queen. Hey, the gay and the grinding. How she'll grieve at my burying by the bonny bonny bows of London. And yonder sits my sister Anne. Hey, the gay." She who drowned me in the stream got the bonny bonny bows of London. So I listened to the Martin Carthy version, I listened to your version, and what I love, of course, about Steel Ice Band's approach in general, but then even more so here, is just how thoroughly you make over things and redo the mood. So what is this, seems for a band without a bass player, you come in with a big drone at the beginning. Is Roger playing a baritone guitar or something, or how is... Got a little keyboard. I mean, Roger's using using an effect on his guitar, he's going through a pedal. I don't know. I think they call it violining, funny enough. Sure. I'm sure. But we start off with a drone. That little click-clack percussion, what is he What is he playing there besides? A little bunch of nuts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe African. It's very creepy. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's a bunch of nuts on strings, and you can rattle them and do all sorts of things with them. Crack them open for Christmas parties, all sorts of things. <laughs> It's like the opposite of wind chimes to have the... Yeah. I mean, how we recorded that, I said, well, let's just... I'll put a guide fiddle down and a guide vocal. And Roger said, and I'll put a guide guitar down. And that's what stayed. And that's often the case, isn't it? We try to improve on it, but then your mind goes into some other place, you know, when you're not thinking too hard about it. You just enjoy yourself and have a play. So the guitar part that Roger played and my fiddle part are the guide parts... I redid the vocal. I can't remember about the drums. We might have redone some drums at some point. Well, you've got several violins overlaid on this one, you know, different than your previous albums with this group. In the intro bit, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I remember. I just wrote that little part out. I thought it sounded quite nice, a little bit sort of bluesy or something. There was one place where the sound would pierce her heart of stone, where you've sort of revealed the monstrous violin where it just coalesces into this layered string resolution. And the sound will pierce a heart of stone. That was a written out part, or are you just going and just put things over there? No, I wrote something out for that. I just thought that would be nice. And something else that's interesting about this song is that with Gig Spanner, when there's a solo, we never repeat what we play. It's whether it's Roger's solo or my solo. We always play something different. You know, the beginning of The Butterfly, for instance, that's always different. We do a thing now, she moves through the fair, 
and that's always different. That keeps it fresh. Over the middle section for the violin solo, I probably played, I don't know, 15, 20 takes over that chord sequence or what Roger was playing on his guitar. Which it's not the same chord sequence. It kind of just, everything stops. There's kind of, so the whole, it has a cadenza feel, yeah. That's right. Yes, that's right. And I was in my studio and I tried probably 15, 20 takes. One of them was the take that was there. That's not chopped about. That was just how I played it. And I learned it. And that is what I play on gigs because I like it so much. And that's quite rare for me. But we've got enough openness in the in the other songs for that it's okay for me to do that. And I love the melody that came out of that. Yes. I mean, it's like a whole other song. Just, yes. you know, it's just as good. <laughs> it seems like when you write songs, when you write vocal lines so lyrical, it's the same skill that goes into doing a violin melody. It's just this vocal quality that your fingers are connected to your brain enough so that, you know, when melodies for me spring to mind, like vocally is the most natural way. And then it's sort of an extra thing to figure out like, okay, how do I exactly do I do this in guitar? But I would think it would be at least equally, or if not more so, it seems that I'm noticing that even if you have a similar melodic sense on your violin and your singing, your singing is of course not acrobatic all over the place. Is that just because that's the quality of your voice or that's just kind of the way you think of vocal lines as simpler, more to the point, whereas the violin is sort of created to flourish? I think there are singers and I think there are musicians and I think there are musicians who sing and I think that I'm a musician who sings. It's sort of been forced upon me you know, writing some songs in Steelite and now with Gigspanner. I'm working on a couple of songs now. I quite enjoy writing songs more lately than in the early days. And I think that writing We Shall Wear Midnight was the beginning of my interest in songwriting. And I think another song that you're going to play is From a Lullaby Kiss, and that was the next song that I wrote. I'm working on another couple now together, but I haven't hit that crying time with it yet. I've got the melodies, but I'm not willing these days to accept second best from myself. I don't want any that'll do, you know. So I'm not really vocally capable of throwing my voice around. I'm 69 years old now, you know, and I've got so much time left. I mean, I love playing my fiddle, and I feel that my playing is getting better and better. I don't want to spend my time doing vocal exercises so that I can sing the songs a bit better. It's not of any interest to me. And I also know that if you write a good song and you sing it sincerely, Mm -hmm. no one else is thinking, well, he's not really embellishing that very much or I can't hear any vibrato and all that sort of stuff. And all I try and do is I just try and get the words across however I do that. And the best way for me to do that is to just keep it simple, you know. Well, and given that this trio was not created as a singing group, I mean, unless the recordings I was listening to just involved a lot of overdubbing of you. No, I think even in the live one, like you got a pretty good vocal trio, given that these guys were not cast in those parts for that reason. Yeah, I mean, we've all got voices and we all love music, but we're never going to create beautiful vocal harmonies and have it 
like you know there's some bands that are absolutely phenomenal with their what they do vocally you know i don't think we're ever going to be like that we're far more interested in the music that we're playing really than the songs that we're singing you know and to be honest it's a bit of a struggle coming up with songs all the time really it's something that i have the interest in writing songs but looking now for traditional songs it becomes more difficult yeah we'll say more about how you chose this set Again, the sort of picture I have of Gig Spanner is that while Steel Eye Span was still active, this was your outlet to do something different. And now that this is your main thing, and as you said, there are pressures in terms of gigging, you know, is he going to play Steel Eye Span stuff? Are they going to sing? That you're not selling out or doing with the audience, but but choosing among the things you love, (laughs) including some of the traditional material this way for this new album. How was the search process for finding Bows of London and deciding to do Mad Tom of Bedlam and some of the the other ones like that, Hard Times from Old England? What made you settle on these in particular? Was it just you're trying a lot of things and seeing what's natural and... Yeah, well, they're songs that I like, mm-hmm. and they're songs that not just maybe have been recorded by Steeli, but recorded by loads and loads of people. And that's the lovely thing about traditional songs is that they are there to mess with. And the lovely thing about singing a traditional song is that no one's judging you about the words or whatever because they're not to do with you. Some of the traditional songs are relevant today and some of them aren't, and that's okay either way. Hard Times of Old England, I love singing Hard Times of Old England, and I really like the arrangement that yeah. we've oh, yeah. with it. Because it's, you know, lots of people, including Sea Lights, oh, the Hard Times of Old England. I never read the words, you know. I never saw it as a jolly up. And the plucky fiddle bit came from just going into my studio one day. Everything was set up. I think I came in here into my kitchen, something to eat, bottle of wine, couple of beers, something else in the studio it was all set up fiddle was ready to go and i just picked my fiddle up and i ended up just doing a bit of pizzicato stuff like holding it like a guitar because i also do a lot of pits holding the fiddle on the chin as well and i just hit a pattern that i i hadn't played before it was lovely anyway and immediately i thought hard times of old england so i worked on it you know and the chords and whatever so yeah i'm very pleased with that i guess any more on bows of london in particular can you say a little more about how this particular arrangement came about was this developed over time as you were messing around with this live no we were recording the album mm-hmm. i didn't really know what to do with bows of london so i said let's just put it down and see what happens I said, I'll do a guide fiddle, guide vocal. So the guide is where you're basically playing the melody along with the words, right? And then the other ones are added on top. Yeah. I mean, what you normally do, you know, you put a guide fiddle down, guide guitar, guide vocal, guide drums, and then you replace it all. But you've just got a basic track to a click that you can work to and then just change everything. That's sort of what you do, you know. You play it properly and sing it properly after that. But with the guitar part that Roger played and with my fiddle part, we tried to sort of, I say, improve on it, but it was just we didn't get any better than that. Because I wasn't singing and playing Mm -hmm. when I played the fiddle. So I was freer to do it. On the gigs, I try and play some of the things while I'm singing that I played on the recording, but it's quite hard to do. It's a rub your belly and pat your head one or whatever it is, you know. So, no, it was created in the studio. Is that part of having an instrument as busy as the fiddle is over some of those verses? You know, by the third verse, you're really sawing away while you're singing. He laid this fiddle all down on a stone, lay the gay and the grinding. 
but it doesn't sound too busy. It doesn't sound, if you had a regular rock band and the lead guitarist was taking up that much space over the vocal, you would say, no, stop. You got to back off and wait for the break and then come in and do that. Is that just something in the character of the fiddle that it doesn't take up as much space? And that's kind of one of the tropes in folk music that the fiddle can take up that much space and it's okay over the singer. I don't know. I mean, maybe in this case, Mark, it's sort of okay. And we certainly never thought, as the rest of the band did, you know, Roger and Vincent, you know, well, great fiddle part, you know, but it didn't seem to detract from the vocal. It seemed to enhance the vocal somehow. It's probably a bit of luck that that happened because (laughs) I'm sure there are times where I'll be thinking the fiddle, you know, there's things we've done recently where I think, well, that's far too busy for this detracting from the vocal. But it's almost the vocal accompanies the music, really, in that song, probably. You know, it just sort of rolls along. It's interesting that you say that the guitar was a first take as well, because it sounds like maybe it's just because it's fiddle-based as opposed to, here's a chord and now you're playing the melody over it, it's based around the melody, and then it sounds like some of the chords he's improvising or doing some kind of jazz voicings that are inimitable. He probably had to learn after the fact in the same way that you did. (laughs) Yeah, Roger did learn his, not exactly, in the solo he learned the progression that he played, but when we recorded it, that was just, he just got a new pedal. I mean, Roger owns a music shop in Hastings. He's got lots and lots of toys to play with (laughs) if he wants to. And he brought the pedal into his studio and he said he got this new pedal and he just played it. I said, that'd be great for Bowser London. That's a great atmospheric sound. And that was it. What Roger played was the first time he'd ever played on Bowser of London. So it's not just a volume pedal that he's fading in. It's something Yeah, and something else as well. There's something else going on. It's a certain effect that he's using. I don't know. It's an awesome sound. Well, let's make the transition to the third song then from A Lullaby Kiss. So tell me, I know that you released it on the most recent release of your 1991 solo album, An Ancient Cause, but is this recording actually that old or is this a 2014 recording? I saw that's when it was posted to YouTube. Yeah, I used An Ancient Cause album to piggyback that song and another tune that I recorded as well because I wanted to sing it on the Feast of Fiddles tour, which is a tour that I do once a year. And there's a lovely player in that band called Alan Wetton and he plays sax and he's a good keyboard player. And I wanted some pipey, droney, organy sound behind it. I didn't know what I wanted exactly, but I worked on it with Alan and I knew I wanted to sing it on the Feast of Fiddles tour. And I had a sneaky suspicion that it would be quite a popular song. So I needed to be able to have it on a CD, but I didn't have time to record a CD. So my wife's idea, she comes up with all the good ideas, which is to piggyback it on the Ancient Cause CD. And I sold out in no time and I haven't pressed anymore. I won't, I won't do that again. I'll probably re-record it again with a bunch of new stuff. I spent the last week pretty much listening to nothing but your music in preparation for this, but there's so much Steely Span stuff. What, you've got four solo albums out, none of which I've heard in full, because either they're not available and they're not digitally available. They were somehow only little bits of it have I heard. So I'm looking forward, if the rest of it is anything like this, because this is definitely a high watermark in terms of a nice capturing your ballad style. Again, so we're turning to something that's like We Shall Wear Midnight is a stripped-down arrangement. So, I'm sorry, what year then was this recording actually from? I probably wrote the song in 2013, I would think. Okay. I think that's probably when I wrote From a Lullaby Kiss. So I think it's just piano and violin. Do you have any comments about what it's about before we play it? It's sort of about me, really. It started life in my studio 
sitting there with my fiddle. I've got a mic. Well, all my mics are on the ceiling. All my mic stands are on the ceiling and I swing them down. It keeps them out off the floor, which is really good. And I just have one mic that I can just go in and push the red button and then doodle around and mess around and whatever. And the seed of this song was sown and then I worked on it. And for a long time, it was just fiddle and voice. And it really is just about me. But what's lovely, some of the songs I've written, people have said that they want them played at their funeral. And what was nice about this one is that I sang it on a gig and a couple came up to me and said, such a beautiful song and we're getting married next week and we're playing it at our wedding. So um, (laughs) I'm obviously quite good at wedding songs too. Some lessons I've learned If you jump in the fire You're bound to get burned I could say I was pushed in But I was to blame I was drawn to the light And the dance of the flame I was easily led Both my heart and my head And believed every word That those dream pushers said Because nobody told me The truth about lies That they hide in the words But they live in the eyes This life, this life is mine From a lullaby kiss and my first awaking It's a life I will miss when it's time for the taking Which is why every day must be mine for the making One thing I know One thing I know is This life, this life is mine (laughs) ¶¶ 
So I was sure, just like I was sure that We Shall Wear Midnight, that this song was, again, about death in a very honest, existential, grab-the-most-of-life kind of way, as opposed to Bows of London, which is also about death, but is in the murder ballad sort of way. Is that not your emphasis? The reason one would say, this day is mine, it's grabbing the moment in this intense way, is because of the recognition of death, or is that not forefront with this song? I think that the last thing I want to do is to be lying on my deathbed, looking back at this strange existence that we all have for some sort of amount of time that we never know quite how much it is, and just thinking I didn't really give it one. And it's just a reminder, really, that it is seize the day, isn't it? I remember talking to Trevor once we were talking, and he said he really does try and live in the moment now, if he can. Because sometimes you're alive and you're on the planet and you're in some place, but you don't want to be there and you're moving on to something. I think just... And from a lullaby kiss is my mother, who's no longer with us, obviously, but she was always singing. And it was my mother that taught me right from wrong, really, not with sort of hitting me or anything, because she would never do that. But if I did something wrong, the look of disappointment on her face was so horrible that it made you not want to do anything wrong again. And as I say, she was always singing. So a lullaby kiss is the first kiss that my mother gave me when I was born. That's where that came from. And that's my thought about it. I don't know what anyone else listening to the song would think about that, but it really is just live your life. Can you say a little more about, I was looking at the second half of the bridge. I was easily led both my heart and my head and believed every word that those dream pushers said because nobody told me the truth about lies. They hide in the words, but they live in the eyes. I love that image. Can you say a little more about where that came from, what that means? I have wondered probably the last two or three years that maybe I'm not very bright as a man, meaning that I get lost in music and I know that I'm not available to loved ones for a lot of the time. I'm vacant because I'm dealing with music all the time in my head. And I'm not sure that I'm that observant. I think my instincts are quite good, but I'm not sure whether I actually take much notice of them. So when I say I've been easily led both my heart and my head, I think I have been. Believed every word that those dream pushers said, maybe, here and there. But the line that I remember when I sang the line, when I work on lyrics, when I've got the basic structure of the song and emotionally I feel okay with the melody and the few words that I have that I know will stay. Mm -hmm. After that, I've got to keep that same feeling going in the song and keep laying on the emotion. When I hit the line, which I sang, nobody told me the truth about lies. They hide in the words, but they live in the eyes. What that was about, of course is that what someone is saying to you, the words that come out, there's other indications about whether you should believe them or not. You know, I remember seeing a program, you know, these sort of bloopers programs, you know, where they're take after take to try and get the thing right. You know, it was a country star in America. It was a TV program. And I think three sisters or something, and they all played drums and fiddles and banjos and all this, you know. And she was doing the thanks for listening to us and I'd like to thank God for giving us the opportunity to be here and da-da-da-da-da and da-da-da. And her eyes were so sincere, you know, she's looking and, you know, like da-da-da and saying all these things. And then she'd mess up what she was saying and she'd go, oh, fuck shit, da-da-da-da-da. And then go back into this 
act that was believable. You know, it's like acting, because some people act music. I'm not into that at all. I don't entertain in that way. I, I play music, and if I move, it means that the music's moved me, but I don't jump about and wave my arms around and all of that, you know, as some entertainment trick. So, yeah, I mean, look at your fellow man or woman carefully when they're saying things to you that will affect your life look in the eyes so the connection to the rest of the song i guess that's the part a seize the day song it's one of the fundamental human experiences so yes but putting in there oh and people will lie to you and you got to watch out for that is that the thing that most distracts you from pursuing what would be your most natural true self true goals is getting sucked up into other people's bullshit is that a translation of what you just said I probably have done. I think it's sort of a, a bit of an own-up, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'm, I've been easily led, and I have been easily led. For how long? I, I don't know. And why and where and with who and all the rest of it, you know. But not just like in personal things, but managers and, sure. you know, people, all sorts of areas of life, you know, where I know that other people go, hang on, I'm go, hang on, what's going on here, you know. I mean, and I do do that, but I haven't done it all the time. And I think that I've probably not been that bright, actually. I don't know if that's the right word. I don't want to put myself down here. I don't feel that I'm a complete and absolute idiot or anything, but the song was a bit of an own-up, and I, it was emotional when I wrote it. And the people that come up to me and, and talk about the song, you know, completely identify with it. So I know it. I'm not alone with these feelings. I don't look back in anger, and I don't regret anything that I've ever done in my life. I've had, and I'm having a great life. But there are things you do look back and you think, oh, what an idiot I was there, you know, or I didn't see that one coming or something, you know, or that wasn't a very good decision and whatever, you know. So just to address the whole acting thing, because this interfaces interestingly with the whole process of doing folk music and maybe it's just the manner in which you do it, because I've had other folks that I've interviewed talk about even just whole genres as being kind of historical reenactment and finding it hard to understand how you could have a personal expression while singing Black Leg Minor or something like that. And certainly if I were going to right now do a Steel Ice Band, do my best Tim Hart impression and sing Black Leg Minor, it would be acting. Not necessarily offensive acting, not lying. There's nothing morally suspect about it. But if I made that my whole career to base myself on being a purist in some way, there's a lot of people that find that a very authentic type of way to do music. It seems that's not the way Steel Ice Band and you have approached the traditional stuff, that there's something less mannered, that you don't dress in medieval clothing, you don't... What you're sort of talking about here is that every area of music has its idiosyncrasies and it has its accent and its sound. So I've been around folk music for years, you know, and I've heard all sorts of singing and someone will go up to a, on an open mic night or something, you know, at the Cecil Sharp house and they'll say uh, in their ordinary voice and they'll say, I'm now going to sing a song and it's called The Bold Princess Royal. And then they'll adopt a pose and they will go, Now on the 14th day of February. And you think, I don't believe this. Why are they <laughs> exactly. doing this? I just turn off then. I just think, and some people do that to different degrees and some people only put a little bit of the accent in or whatever and only have a little bit of the sound of that voice. But for me, there's a reality about making music and singing songs and what's wrong with your own voice, you know? it's. 
Although once you do something enough times, it sort of becomes your own voice. I mean, even the Rolling Stones were aping, you know, American black music and Mick Jagger. I was just reading a thing about the early days of the Stones, which you know, was criticized for sounding too black. So he was doing something that was mannered, but now the Rolling Stones are kind of taken to exemplify honest, or at least at that point in their career, <laughs> something authentic. It's very strange, this authenticity thing. Yes, it is strange. Middle-class blokes singing in American accents. I wouldn't want to do it. I'd feel silly doing it. And I think it's horses for courses, really, isn't it? You can do anything you like, really. You can sing in any accent or any voice, but... It was quite an interesting thing. You mentioned Tanner earlier on, which was a trio with Kevin Dempsey, Tom Leary and myself. And we had a gig in Northampton and there was a Bulgarian singer going to be there. And I was really looking forward to meeting her because I love Bulgarian music or some of it. And I know that she was probably going to be quite good at improvising around things. So we were all in the dressing room. It was a huge dressing room backstage and... I started playing my fiddle to warm up, but I played in a way that I was trying to tempt her into coming over and singing with it, which she did. And it was beautiful. And we improvised for, I don't know, five, six minutes, which is quite a long time as a little impromptu thing, you know. And it was lovely. And I gave her a hug and she gave me a hug. And it was a lovely little musical exchange. And she was singing in her own language, in her own style, and it was lovely. Well, she did a gig with um, her husband, who's English and a folk musician. And she sang a couple of Bulgarian songs, and he was accompanying her on a mando cello or something. And it was lovely, and I was listening to her sing, and I thought, yeah, beautiful. And then she sang an English song called The Blacksmith, which lots of people have recorded, Steele I've recorded it. And she sang it in English, and she sang it in a sort of a folky way, and it just sounded sort of a bit daft to me. And I know she obviously liked the song and whatever. Well, if you reverse that situation, that I learn a Bulgarian tune and then go and play it in front of a bunch of Bulgarian musicians, they're going to hear what's going on. They might think, well, okay, he's not playing it bad, but it sounds a bit iffy. So if I play anything, and sometimes when I'm improvising, I do play things that sound like they're, you know, Arabic or... Sure. Just depends what mode you pick, yeah. But the point is, just let it come in subliminally. It's a thank you to that lovely music. You're not actually playing that music or trying to play that music. You've moved into an area and a sound on the fiddle, a little something or the other that just pays homage to that beautiful music. But going off and learning the licks and learning the tunes is a whole different thing. It's okay. This is not like some really serious thing, but you're talking about what do you do in your lifetime, you know, and what you've got to do is feel comfortable mm-hmm. playing music. And the way that you feel comfortable playing music is to know exactly why you're playing it and what you're doing with it. And if there's any compromises going on, know why you're compromising. You've got to feel comfortable with what you're doing. Were any of the traditional songs that you ended up picking, because you're trying to pick things of different moods to balance out the set, and some of them are going to be very serious and modal sounding and traditional sounding, so much of Steel Ice Band is just so fun. Were there songs that you picked not because it was, I don't want to say ironically, because it's not like you're engaging in social commentary of people who are dead for 200 years. That's not the right word, but such that, yes, you're kind of doing something because you found this ballad, which is weird. Even just looking at the one that we talked about here, <laughs> The Bows of London, the way you played it is not jolly and laughing, 
but that's a weird song. And so many of the Steel Eye songs, when I actually listen to the lyrics, these are strange. So how does that line up with this take on authenticity in the way you were just talking about it? That having a laugh about something and finding joy in it is not the same as putting on a charade. It's, it's making fun of it, doing a performance. Steel Eye did... They didn't do Bows of London, but they did... When Ken Nickel was in the band, Ken came in with a, a song called The Three Sisters, which is the same story, mm-hmm. except there's three of them. He might have written some of the tune, or all of it, I don't know, I can't remember. But that was a very rocky, jumping up and down sort sure. of song. You know? And Steel Eye had done quite a lot of those songs, because in the early days we played just festival after festival. And obviously at festivals, if you're headlining a festival... The norm is that everyone has a little jig around and a good time and and all of that, you know. And when Gig Spanner performs Bows of London, we don't jump around. We don't jump around on any of We don't. There are a couple upbeat songs in the album, but not jumping around. We don't sit down on gigs, though. (laughs) (laughs) At least we're still standing. (laughs) <laughs> yes, the drums are too high off the ground. I guess he could have a stool, but he... Yeah, well, I'm the old git of the outfit. Roger's only about 40-something. Vincent's 58, I think, something like that. So he's next in line. So I'm somebody that's used to listening to rock music, writing rock music. You know, when I write lyrics, they have to kind of, I don't know, this standard of authenticity or something so that it's very easy for me to look at my old lyrics and kind of hate them. That like, I, ugh, it's not transparently transmitting the emotion in the way I want. So... Even in a ballad that is honestly expressive, I was just listening to one of the other, this is probably not one that you brought in, but the Lord Elgin, one of the Steely songs that is just a straight ahead, wonderful ballad and every day I will love you kind of thing. And then the tagline is every second of every minute of every hour of the day, Lord Elgin will save the day, which is, that's not a personal expression of the singer anymore. We're importing, (laughs) but there's something freeing about that, that because you're doing something in a folk idiom, whether or not it's an original song, because it's Steel Ice Band doing it or even you doing it, then there's a certain amount of license that you could use things that wouldn't sound natural if you just said it to another person or, you know, don't sound necessarily contemporary. Maybe that's just an American being far removed. That It's this foreign thing that I can find exciting in this new way. You mentioned Lord Elgin. It is a song that I wrote. I've wrote a lot of riddle songs, songs that sound like they're about one thing, but they're about another. And Lord Elgin is a watch. Ah. A wristwatch. Here I was reading the Wikipedia about the actual Lord Elgin who moved the statues from Greece to Britain. Okay, none of that. (laughs) It's none of that. And Seagull is about the game Shove Penny. And I wrote a song called Poor Old Soldier, which is about Maddie. And I write things that seem as though they mean one thing, but there's something else going on, which you'll know about with another song we're going to talk about. Well, this is the end. We're just going to do the introduction to this, then we're going to be done. Our last song, Who Told the Butcher, from Bedlam Born 2000, the Steel Eye Span album, that didn't have Maddie Pryor on it. I did want to ask you about this period. It seems like during those few albums where Gay Woods was singing and there were sort of fewer members on the board fewer egos to deal with, you were the, the one that had been in it the longest. It's interesting that you said in this interview that it's just with this last Steel Eye album that you start to discover that you like songwriting. In these albums in the early aughts, late 90s, was that a period where you felt like, oh, I can kind of open up and express more and get more of my songs out there without having to fight with as many other people? Oh, no, not really. I mean, there's two things you're talking about. That period of time where Maddie left and Gay Woods was in the band. And of course, that was a very interesting time because... Gay Woods was in the original Steel Ice Band with 
Ashley, it was Terry and Gay Woods and Tim Hart and Maddie Pryor and Ashley Hutchings. And something went on all those years ago and it wasn't pleasant for any of them. I wasn't in the band, so they split up. But there was a lot of weirdness and resentment from both sides, which came to the surface when Gay came back into the band because Maddie was having voice problems. Oh, okay. And it was actually Rick's idea to get Gay Woods back into the band. And I didn't know Gay Woods. But there was quite a bit of clashing going on between Gay and Maddie. It was very difficult for the both of them for very different reasons. i got to say, that album Time that they're both on is wonderful. That's probably my favorite Steely album. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's their two voices together, isn't it? And Tim Hart's voice, absolutely extraordinary. It was a superb voice. But there was a very, very difficult time for them. The details don't matter about that, but it did surprise me that Maddie left and not Gay. I was quite surprised that that was the result of that. But that was the case. The reason why I'm interested in songwriting now more than I was then, although people have said that some of those songs that I'd written for Steely were good songs, is that I still had a little bit of that'll do in me. When you're writing a song, you know, because you write songs, you're sitting there and you're working on a song and there'll be a bit that you've got to get through, you've got to work on it, and you've written something there. It's not as good as you wanted it to be. You work and work and work and work to try and get something better, but you can't. And the bit that stays is the bit that you're not totally happy with, but it's sort of okay. And I've tried to... I'm not saying that you work like that, Mark. I'm just saying that... I'm just trying to apply this to who told the butcher. Is this one that you ended saying, eh, this is sort of okay? It's Because <laughs> it's a wonderful song. <laughs> no, not at all. But uh, the reason why there's a difference in my songwriting now is that I want to write some good songs. And I feel that We Shall Wear Midnight and From a Lullaby Kiss are good songs. And I think that looking back on the, some of the songs that I did for Steely, like Lord Elgin, for instance, it's a song and it is about a watch and that's it's a riddle sort of song and all of that, but it's not one that I'd sing now with any commitment. I would let her go down. Sure. Gone to America, probably not. White Man, song I wrote, probably not now. That was being in Australia and talking to people there about the problem with the aborigines and stuff you know and apply that or give us some final words to uh, introduce who told the butcher in particular what this song is about is that i'm a fly fisherman and they're all the names of flies including the butcher ah that's a fly too and bring old brownie back is the brown trout and the chorus which is tie the damsels two to the droppers when you have your line out there with the hooks you can have a couple hanging off the main line which are called droppers tie old kate mclaren to the point that's the point fly anyway so they're all names of flies and it took maddie five days to suss it and she had to get help (laughs) but maddie doesn't sing on this one right she likes the song though and we have sung it on gigs you know i know there was another one about death that i was just listening to a 2010 live version of that you sang the song will remain the good ones Uh, from that era which uh, it doesn't seem like it's an accident that like this song like that song that your best songs are all slow ballads that they're emotional (laughs) and they're not the jaunty little ones i love your jaunty playing is kind of what makes the steel eye all those jigs and stuff anyway thank you so much for doing this thank you mark bye for now
butcher All about the grey goose oh, It could have been the poacher Nobody knows Or it could have been the royal coachman Or Connemara Black Just listen well to what the ladies say And bring old Brownie back And who told the butcher about the lady of the lake? It could have been the queen of the water, nobody knows. Or it could have been old soldier Palmer or teal and black. Just listen well to what the ladies say and bring old Brownie back. Damsels to the droppers and tie old Kate McLaren to the point. There's none so wise to the rise of the river. The butcher's out there tonight. Come on, tie the damsels to to the droppers and tie old Kate McLaren to the point. There's none so wise to the rise of the river. The butcher's out there tonight. Oh, the butcher's out there tonight. All about the grenadier It could have been the teal and green Nobody knows Or it could have been old Wickham's fancy Or humbly black Or just listen well to what the ladies say And bring old Brownie back Come on, tie the damsels to to the droppers and tie old Kate McLaren to the point. There's none so wise to the rise of the river. The butcher's out there tonight. Come on, tie the damsels to to the droppers and tie old Kate McLaren to the point. There's none so wise to the rise of the river. The butcher's out there tonight. The butcher's out there tonight. Wow, Peter Knight, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Now, nowhere in that episode or the intro did we play any of what might be called the classic Steel Eye Span. The time when they were most in the public eye was from the early 70s, mid-70s, which again is mostly traditional English and Irish tunes. The first few albums are mostly acoustic, and their most popular period... In the 70s, is very rock and roll, often danceable. If you're a fan of Jethro Tull or bands like that, I would definitely recommend that you check them out. Again, to learn more about Peter, check out peternight.net. And if you go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, look at the blog post corresponding to this episode, I will link to a number of the other songs that we referred to here regarding Wintersmith. The first song we talked about here doing this interview did inspire me to go back and read more Terry Pratchett. I read enough of the Tiffany Aching series in particular to understand that wearing midnight had something to do with getting old. That she's a witch. Witches are supposed to wear black. Tiffany is a young witch, likes to wear regular colors, but will wear midnight when she's older. I really want to call this episode Fiddlin' in the Face of Death, since that was my initial impression from so many of these songs. Though I take Peter's point that acknowledging death is certainly not the same as being morbid. And really any good art, art that embraces the fullness of life, 
tries to squeeze the most out of experience is, of course, acknowledging death implicitly. All right, so if you like interviews like this, where we actually talk about the music, where you get introduced to great artists that perhaps you've not heard before, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook. It really help if you go to our iTunes store page and leave a nice rating or review. If you could share the Facebook link or the blog link to this on your Facebook page, on your Twitter, your other social media outlets, I would really, really, really appreciate it. If you've got any suggestions or want to be on the show yourself, please contact me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you want to hear my music, go to marklinta.com. My next episode will be with Jill Freeman. I hope you check it out. Until then, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. 